Good morning. How are we doing? Okay. Well, it's good to see you all. And uh, we are going to be in John 19. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we'll be uh, finishing almost all of John 19. We'll have a little piece left next week. I think we've got seven Sundays left after today in the Gospel of John. It's been quite a journey uh, going through the Gospel of John verse by verse. And uh, as I mentioned last week, by the time we get to the end, we will have read aloud together the entire Gospel of John. Uh, somebody caught me this morning before this service and just said, I just want you to know the Gospel of John has now become my favorite book in the Bible. And so that's exciting to hear that as we open God's Word, we read it, it speaks to us, um, that it stirs affection, that it's more than just a, a cognitive exercise, um, but it's part of our relationship with, with our God and, and, the way, and one of the ways by which He speaks to us. And so we're hoping and we're praying for that again this morning, whether you're here in person or join us online, that God would speak to you in a very personal way. Uh, as we work through this passage. Um, the thing about uh, where we are in, in the Gospel of John that's unique is that we've really reached the intensity, the full intensity of the story he's telling. Like this is the most intense moment in the Gospel. There have been others before where those were seeking to arrest Jesus and take his life, and we could feel the tension in the, in the story unfolding, but now we've reached the place where Jesus is going to draw his last breath and die. And what's, what's important for us to keep in mind is that while this moment is really intense, what John's going to do is he's going to remind us over and over and over again how this moment uh, in the life of Jesus is connected to every other moment. I want you to think about this. If what John is telling us is true, then, then what we're reading about today is not just connected to every other moment in time, but it impacts not just the human story, but all eternity. Like this is the first time, if Jesus draws his last breath today, having not sinned, this will be the first time that a human has done that. Since the beginning of creation, that a human being has gone from birth to death and not sinned. That's a big deal. And then for those of us who know what's coming next, not only is he going to draw his last breath, but he will rise again in the third day, again, the first time a human being has ever defeated death. And what John sets out to do with this gospel is to tell us the story for us to see the full humanity of Christ that we might see the full deity of Christ. For John to say, this is no ordinary man. This man is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that by believing on him, you would have forgiveness of sins and eternal life in his name. And so today, as we work through this passage, we're going to see four times he specifically connects the unfolding events of Jesus' death to other places in the Bible. But in between those times, he's unfolding a narrative that continues to point us to prophecies. And so while there is an intensity to this moment, it's important for us to see this moment connected to the entire story of the Bible. This is the moment that changes all other moments in time. We're going to start in actually verse 22 with uh, what Pilate said whenever they were criticizing him for the sign that he had written and put over Jesus' head. This, as you can imagine, really infuriated those who were, who were bringing Jesus to Pilate to be put to death. When Pilate has the, the inscription, uh, this is the king of the Jews, those who have brought Jesus to Pilate are really frustrated and upset and infuriated by this. 
And they want him to change the sign, right? They want him to change what he has written and say, no, no, no. This guy just claimed to be the king of the Jews. And it's Pilate's response that I want to start with today when he responds to him and says, what I have written, I have written. Now, we don't know Pilate's heart behind that. Is he just ready to be done with this whole scene? You know, is he just doesn't have the patience anymore? Like, I'm done with this. Just, just whatever I've done, I've already done. Or is he establishing his authority with the Jews, keeping them in their place? You don't get to rule over me. I rule over you. And what I have written stands. And what I have written, therefore, I have written. Holding and the, and the characters within the scene um, are perceiving that one thing is happening. But from God's perspective, a whole other thing is happening. You know, one of those that was just super better for, it's better that we kill Jesus now. It's better that one man would die to save the entire nation. You guys remember that? And John, who's writing, says, hey, Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. He was making a statement in the moment as one of the characters of the story. But in God's redemptive story, he was talking about the one who would die for all nations. And so we can see that over and over again in the Gospel of John. And I see a reflection here as Pilate responds with some form of authority. What I have written, what's going to happen through this entire passage today is God is going to say over and over again, what I have written, I have written. What I have written, I have written. What I have written, I have written. Every time we see a prophecy fulfilled, God is saying, look, what I have written still stands. What I have written, I have written. And so one of the first places we're going to go now is we're going to look at uh, verse 16 and 17. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, you can do that, and these will be on the screen. So we begin here with Pilate's decision. He delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, what's interesting about this detail um, about Jesus carrying his own cross, it's really symbolic. And, it, and, it, and if you've read um, your Bible from the beginning to the end, it, it should remind you of other stories in the Bible. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 22, when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to ask you to do something really hard with your son, your one and only son. If you know the story, this is where God calls Abraham to take his one and only son, whom he loved, Isaac, up onto the mountaintop, to the altar, and to sacrifice him. What's beautiful about this story is God steps in in the last moment and, 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 and provides a replacement sacrifice. and says, don't harm the boy, butcher this, this ram instead. And in that, we see these reflections of what is to come, a God who will send his one and only son, to die on the altar for the sins of many, and that Jesus comes as our replacement sacrifice, a better sacrifice on our behalf. But there's a detail about the story that I don't know if you remember. I'll just read a few verses from Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And then look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, the fire and the knife. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went 
both of them together. And we see this image of Abraham setting out for Moriah with his son, who's to be the sacrifice. And who's carrying the sacrifice? His son is carrying the wood on his back. And so we see these reflections of what is to come. It helps us understand the intensity of the moment from God's perspective as he leads his son out to the cross, literally with the wood of the sacrifice on the back of his son Jesus. We see that Jesus' garments are going to be divided among the soldiers. You might think, well, what's, what's that detail matter? Well, first of all, it matters because what God has written, he has written. And when God says this is a detail that will indicate that my son is headed to die as a sacrifice for the sins of many, the details matter. But think about what this means. First of all, we see a fulfillment here. I'm going to read verses 23 and 24, and we'll see a fulfillment of Psalm 22. And then we'll talk about just the symbolism here. 23 says this, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. So to understand what's going on here, fabric was kind of like a delicacy. It was rare to like have fabric for clothes. You know, the closets of a first century Jew did not look like your closet. Matter of fact, it wasn't a closet. Maybe, Maybe had two outfits, but really probably just had one outfit, maybe two outer garments that they could switch one for a day of worship and the, the other one and like it was just it was a rarity to even own fabric and so when they were going to put somebody to death it made sense let's don't waste the clothes right and so the soldiers would be permitted to like to take uh the person's clothes and they oftentimes uh would even just rip it up because the material itself was worth so much and so they would take like one piece of clothing and rip it into multiple pieces and pass that out so what's happening here with jesus his garments are being taken off of him but i want you to think about what that leaves jesus with nothing the apostle paul talks about jesus coming as the the second adam or the last adam that we should see a reflection of 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 one in the other and so what paul will say the same way sin entered the world through one man adam sin will be eradicated from the world through one man jesus there's just one comparison between the two but think for a minute about adam's response to his own shame and guilt after sin. I gotta cover up. I gotta hide. God in his grace provides garments for Adam and Eve to cover themselves up with, to hide the shame of their rebellion. And here Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf, fully exposed. No hiding. Like it's more than, it's, it's humiliating, but it's more than that. Jesus has no reason to hide. And so here as they take his garments off as a fulfillment of prophecy, and Psalm twenty-two eighteen says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they cast lots. God, God wrote that through a human author hundreds of years before the cross. And so what God has written, he has written, and it will stand, and it will come to pass. But in the moment, we can see the significance of it, can't we? That he could see forward that his son would go to the cross fully exposed for us. John wants us to see Jesus dying, no clothes, performing his final act here as the last Adam, 
And instead of hiding from sin, he's courageously, courageously stepping into shame on our behalf. Think about that. There's another detail here that, that John doesn't spend a lot of time on, but he mentions Jesus' mother and the other ladies. And it's important to know, like, this is pretty much Jesus' supporting crowd here. Right? John is close enough to write these things down, but for the most part, the disciples have bailed on Jesus in this moment, left him. And there's a, there's a crowd of four ladies here supporting Jesus. But what seems to be most significant on John's mind is one of the ladies in particular, which is Jesus' mother. And what's interesting is what Jesus says to her and to him and on one hand, it exposes Jesus' humanity, but on the other hand, it also reflects his deity. I want to think about this for a minute. So I'll read, I'm just going to read verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And then he engages in a conversation with his mom and says, Woman, behold your son son behold your mother so on one hand we can see that the humanity in Jesus like as he sees the ladies there the one who captures his his attention in that moment is mom and rightly so he's got an aunt there he's got other people there who are there to support him but he sees his mom and he wants to make sure his mom is taken care of after this moment she essentially he commissions John, take care of her for me, please. And we can see the humanity in that. But his wording is interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say mom. He says woman, ma'am, lady. Because in this, ultimately what we're seeing is Jesus' deity. Jesus has a parent. His parent is his father in heaven. And yes, Mary served as his earthly mother, but he says to his earthly mother, Behold, and he begins to speak with kingdom language. Lady, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. And in Christ, we call each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. You can hear the kingdom language, can't you? Jesus wasn't trying to be rude to his mom or disrespectful or dishonoring. If anything, he was being honoring in his humanity, but he was speaking with the language of deity. And I don't know if you know this about the prophecies about Jesus, but if you go back to Luke chapter 2, there's an interesting prophecy. And this is where Jesus' earthly mother and father, Mary and Joseph, had taken Jesus to the temple to be consecrated, be set apart, and Simeon is the priest there. And I want you to listen to the words of Simeon. This is in Luke 2, starting in 33. As Simeon is there prophesying over Jesus and what would come out of Jesus' life, verse 33 says, his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35 to Mary and a sword will pierce through your soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What Simeon is saying is, Mary and Joseph, God is going to do wondrous things through your son. The weight of the nations is going to be upon his shoulders. 
And he says to Mary, your soul is going to be pierced as well. And I think that's the moment we're beholding right here. I mean, moms in the room, can you imagine? Yeah, you know these prophecies. You've heard the prophecies. You know that your son is going through this great act of sacrifice for the sake of many, but he's still your son. And so as Jesus is pierced there on the cross, the soul of Mary is being pierced as well. And Jesus in his humanity is taking care of his mom, but in his deity he's saying, listen, you guys are going to need each other. You are the kingdom of God. Mother, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. We get to the, the, the part where Jesus is about to draw his last breath. We really get these two beautiful prophecies of Scripture unfolding. One fully indicating Jesus' humanity and the other one fully his deity. It's beautiful the way John puts these two together uh, in verse 28 and 29. We'll start with 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, and John gives us a note, what does he say? To fulfill the scripture. Why? Because what God has written, he has written. And this is what Jesus says, I thirst. Such a simple detail, but don't you see Jesus' humanity in this moment? It's not the kind of thing you would expect God to say in his biggest moment. But he says to fulfill scripture, I thirst, and we're able to see Jesus, a suffering servant, hanging on a cross with real human suffering. Of course he's thirsty. I mean, it's been probably, uh, it's been since communion the night before, the Passover meal the night before, since he's had anything to drink. And then you think about all the blood he's lost, he's more than dehydrated. He's more than thirsty in this moment. Verse 29 says, A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Suffering, more suffering. Didn't even give him a drink of water. Psalm 69, verse 21 says this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's the idea of human need not only being neglected, but but basically being amplified. It's like somebody saying, oh, that wound hurts, let me rub some salt in it. And it magnifies the suffering of Jesus here. When what he needed was a refreshing glass of water, they gave him sour wine. But what verse 30 says is so important. When Jesus had received the sour wine, (laughs) he said, it is finished. And bowed, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the moment in, in eternity where the Son of God dies. His heart literally quits beating. His lungs quit filling with air, and he dies. What he says after drinking the sour wine is, it is finished. 
Now, what I want you to understand is that Greek word, teleo, that we translate into in is finished, was actually a word that was used um, for tax collectors. And so archaeologists have discovered like papyrus documents from this era, like tax receipts, that when you would go in to pay your taxes, it wouldn't get stamped. They didn't have a stamp, but they would write on the back, bottom of your tax receipt, teleo, which means paid in full. Jesus wasn't saying, I am finished. And he wasn't even just saying, the journey is finished, because the journey isn't finished. What he's saying is what? As he draws his last breath from conception to death with no sin, he's saying to us, I am paying your debt in full. Teleo. Paid in full. It is finished. What is finished? Paying your debt. And so we see not only Jesus' humanity and his suffering, he was thirsty, parched, dehydrated, but in his deity, he knew exactly why he was walking through that suffering. It was to pay a debt. Whose debt? My debt. Your debt. And he paid it in full. Now, what happens next, you may be familiar uh, with the process of Roman crucifixion. So the way that it would work is they didn't want to leave somebody on the cross till the next day still alive. And so they would take this cruel act of crucifixion and make it even more cruel. At the very end, if the person wasn't dead, they would break their legs. And the reason for that is the legs were the means for breathing. Because of the way the crucifixion worked, your hands are nailed. You couldn't support yourself. Like if you ever try to hold your hand out like this, like 30 seconds and you're done. There's no way you can support yourself. So you support yourself with your feet and you can't breathe with your, all your weight on your upper torso like this. So the only way you can breathe is to press up and breathe and then you will have to rest until you need another breath. And you would push up and you would breathe. Then you would rest and this would go on. Oftentimes for hours. So the way the Roman soldiers would end the crucifixion process of putting somebody to death is they would come along and they would break the person's legs. And then it was just a matter of a minute or two, the person would suffocate to death. What's interesting, though, is when they come to Jesus, let's read this, verse 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. We might ask, well, how do they know he was dead? Maybe he was just pretending to be dead. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. This is the process that a body goes through once your heart quits pumping blood. The blood and water begin to separate. And so Jesus is, has been dead long enough for his body to begin to separate blood and water. And so there was no need to break his legs. That's deeply connected to the prophecies about Jesus. We, we know maybe in the back of our minds that not one bone of the Messiah will be broken, but I don't know if you know the depth of that symbolism. It takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus. 
where God's people are set free from slavery and they celebrate this freedom of slavery with this Passover meal. And this Passover meal had all these elements to remind them of all that God had in Egypt. And one of the things that happened the night before they were set free was the sacrifice of the spotless lamb. And they would take the blood of the lamb and they, would sprinkle, they sprinkled it over the doorposts. You guys may be familiar with this story, but there's a detail about this. Exodus chapter 12, 46 said this about this lamb, this innocent lamb that would be slaughtered for the safety and the rescue of God's people. Verse 46 says this, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. Even the details of how God called his people to sacrifice, to butcher, and to prepare this spotless, innocent lamb as a meal reflect what Jesus is going to one day do on the cross for us. I mean, why does it matter? I mean, we're just, we're putting it to death anyway. Why can't we just break some bones and let's just eat this meal? And God's like, no, 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 this needs to happen in a very specific way. You shall not break any of this innocent lamb's little bones. Psalm 3420 says this. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. That's an important detail. And here we are in this final moment. Jesus has breathed his last. And we still have prophecies unfolding and being fulfilled. And God is still saying, what I have written, I have written. As the soldier pierces Jesus in the side, it reminds me too of some of the prophecies like Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10, about the Messiah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is God the Father describing the sacrifice of his son that will take place in the future through the prophet Zechariah. We read this one last week, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. And so John is taking great care in capturing all of these details for us and in it we see this this epic moment in in eternity unfolding before our eyes and john wants us to see like this is connected to everything god has been saying four times he tells us this is so the scripture is fulfilled this is to fulfill scripture this is to fulfill scripture this is to fulfill scripture so at the opening of the scene Pilate's standing there we in authority saying to everybody what i have written i have written and it's just a, a, a pale reflection of the God of the universe, isn't it? Saying to all mankind, what I have written, I have written. I want to land in really two places here today. One, um, for those of us who are Christians, Christ followers, we have placed our trust and our hope in Jesus, the one who just died, We've placed our trust and hope in him and him alone. 
my hope for us today is that there's been this kindling of passion for this amazing, what Mike Devenuto called this morning, miraculous book from God. This book is a miracle. Okay? Miracles aren't meant to be worshipped. They're meant to point us to the God who is worthy to be worshipped. But understand, your Bible is a miracle. Like if you run the statistical probability of all the prophecies, John just captured a few that are connected to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Like it is a miracle. John is writing things down that I don't even think he is aware of. And so if you're here today and you're a Christ follower, my hope would be, if necessary, there would be a renewed commitment to this beautiful, miraculous work from God we call the Bible. Nick earlier was talking about all the Bible studies happening all over the, over the city. That, that excites me. Men and women getting together and like studying the Word of God together. Brand new Christians, seasoned Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, learning and growing in the scriptures and that may have stirred something in you when you heard him say that like i want to get into that we want to get you into that but maybe you're here today and you've never realized that what jesus did on the cross was for you and that through his death he paid in full your debt like i don't want to skip over that if you're here today and that's you you've never come to the place in your life where you've acknowledged that the cross is really a symbol of what God's son did for you, that he died on a cross to pay for your sins in full. It is finished, paid in full for you. Then my hope for you today is you would take that step of faith. You may not even know what to do with that. That's why we end our services with prayer partners and with elders and pastors available. If that's you, we want to talk with you. We've got prayer rooms we can go sit down and we can answer questions and we can pray with you as you take that step of faith. Well, that's you today. I'm gonna encourage you to grab somebody before you leave here today. If you're here today and you don't own a Bible, will you grab one of the Bibles underneath one of the seats around you and write your name in it and take that home as a, as a free gift? We want you to have a copy of this miracle book we call the Bible. So take that home with you. I'm gonna pray uh, for us all now and the worship team is going to come back out and we're going to get ready to respond so if you would just or our hearts about whether or not you were willing to meet us in our suffering today the doubts are gone and jesus we see that there would be a stirring of life today through your word some who are listening god today may not even know who you are they may have never taken that first step of faith to trust and believe in Jesus. And so, God, we're praying that that would happen today. Father, that by believing in Jesus, we would have life. We pray all this in his name. Amen.